This is Reverend Kirk Lawton, minister at Ocean Lakes Family Campground, and this is our podcast. Our prayer is that this message may enrich your life as you find God especially meaningful to you. Thank you for worshiping with us. Today we're thinking on the subject, power in prayer. What happens when we pray? Does anything happen? This morning I've selected a very familiar scripture verse as a text for the message, but I want to hold that back until the end of the sermon before I share it with you. We have a hymn that we sometimes sing entitled, Teach Me to Pray. And there's a stanza in that hymn that goes like this, Power in prayer, Lord power and prayer. Oh, give me power, power and prayer. Well, what kind of power is there in prayer? Some time ago, I had the privilege of attending a conference and hearing Dr. J. Edwin Orr speak, great minister of the gospel. In a series of several messages, Dr. Orr vividly recounted what God had done in the lives of people who have taken him seriously and who have joined together in genuine, heartfelt prayer. I want to share with you today some of the things that Dr. Orr told us by way of historical information. And although I'm not going to take time during these next few minutes to quote him on every idea, I do want to acknowledge his contribution to my preparation for this sermon. As his, as his historical information and other sources are filtered through me as they become my own, and I trust will become yours as well. It was Dr. A.T. Pearson who once said, there has never been a spiritual awakening in any country that did not begin in united prayer. This is true of every nation I've ever heard of, certainly true of America where we live now. And as we look back in our history, we can see some startling examples of this truth. Many people may not realize that immediately following the American Revolution, our nation was in a deep moral slump. Drunkenness had become epidemic. Out of a population of 5 million people, 300,000 people had been confirmed drunkards, and they were burying 15,000 of them every year. Profanity had become so widespread that it had reached absolute gutter proportions. They remind you of today what we see on television. There were college students back in those days on some campuses who proudly belonged to what they called the filthy speech movement. And even back in those early days of our nation, people were afraid to go out at night for fear of being attacked. Does that remind you of anything today? Bank robberies robberies in those days were almost a daily occurrence. Churches of all denominations in those early days were in a steep downhill slide. The Methodists were losing more members than they were gaining. The Baptists said that they had their most wintry season. One congregational pastor confessed that in 16 years, he had not taken in one young person for membership. Lutherans were so bad off that they were discussing united with the Episcop- uniting with the Episcopalians, who were even worse off. The Protestant Episcopal Bishop of New York had not confirmed anyone in such a long time until he resigned and got another job. 
the Chief Justice of the United States, John Marshall, wrote that the church, quote, was too far gone ever to be redeemed. Voltaire and Thomas Paine claimed that Christianity will be forgotten in 30 years. Now, I mentioned a moment ago how bad things were on college campuses. Uh, let me give you a little another historical fact. In, 18, in the year 1636, Harvard College was founded by Reverend John Harvard, who contributed the land and his own private library. On the gatepost today, I've been told there appears an inscription that explains why he established the school to maintain what he called a literate clergy. John Harvard recognized that only a handful of ministers from England would be willing to migrate to this new land, a rough land. So he was burdened to start a Christian college in America. So for many years, Harvard College was the principal educational training center for ministers and missionaries, as well as school teachers. Since then, hundreds of ministers have founded Christian colleges, Bible schools, graduate schools, universities, and seminaries. For the first hundred years of American history, every college started in this country was founded by a church denomination or religious group. That's the beginnings of where we are, where, where we came from. But a poll taken at Harvard after the American Revolution revealed that not one believer in Jesus Christ was in the whole student body. Princeton had only two believers. At Williams College, students held a mock communion. Dartmouth students staged anti-Christian plays. Students took a Bible out of the Presbyterian Church in New Jersey and burned it on a public bonfire. Christians were so few on college campuses that in the 1970s, they had to meet in secret. In the 1790s, I got the date wrong. In 1790s, they met in secret, like the early Christians did. And they had to keep their minutes in code so that nobody would know about their faith. Not a bright beginning for America, was it? The great church historian Kenneth Scott Latterett wrote of this time in our nation's history. These are his words. It seemed as if Christianity were about to be ushered out of the affairs of men. And if you think conditions are bad today, they are nothing in comparison with what existed back then. It was a time of real crisis for Christianity in our nation. Unless something drastic happened, it looked for sure that the Christian witness in this nation would absolutely die out completely. But something drastic did happen. What was it? Simply put, it was prayer. To get the whole story, let's back up a bit. Over in Edinburgh, there was a Scottish Presbyterian preacher named John Erskine who published a little booklet calling on people in Scotland and everywhere to unite in prayer for the revival of the Christian faith. He sent a copy of this little booklet to an American preacher whose name was Jonathan Edwards. This booklet so moved Edwards that he wrote a response to it. And finally, he had his response published in a book. The title of that was, A Humble Attempt to Promote 
explicit agreement and visible union of all God's people in extraordinary prayer for the revival of religion and the advancement of Christ's kingdom on earth pursuant to the scripture promises and prophecies concerning the last time. That was the title of his book. That was not the whole book itself. And in spite of that title, so bulky and long, the idea that he professed in that book caught on. People began to answer the urgent plea for prayer for a reawakening in America. This happened across denominational lines, not just in one church. Presbyterians, Baptists, Methodists, Congregationalists, Reformed, Moravians, all joined hearts and hands in prayer. Soon our nation was interlaced with a network of prayer meetings, and the first Monday of each month was set aside for prayer. God heard all these prayers, and things began to change in our nation. I used to live in Kentucky, and I guess I can use this state as an example of how God blessed with answers to prayer. The greatest revival in Kentucky history was called the Great Frontier Revival, which was from 1800 to 1803. Infidelity, crude immorality, spiritual negligence were everywhere in those days. The way in which God answered prayers here in Kentucky was quite unusual. Revival began in Logan County, Kentucky, under the hellfire and damnation preaching of a Scotch-Irish Presbyterian minister whose name was James McGreedy. His chief claim to fame was that he was so ugly that he attracted attention wherever he went. It was reported that when he passed people on the street, they would stop and turn around and say, what does that man do? The answer, he's a preacher. Well, they reacted by saying, well, a man with a face like that must really have something to say. So they went to hear him preach. McGreedy was such a man of prayer that he promised not only the combined prayer, uh, promoted the combined prayer on the first Monday of each month, but he also got people to pray for him at sunset on Saturday evening and at sunrise on Sunday morning. Some may have said that with a face like his, he needed more prayer than others. Well, at any rate, in the summer of 1800, this great Kentucky revival began. When 11,000 people came to a communion service, McGreedy yelled for help, regardless of the denomination. The Baptists refused to help him at first. They were afraid of watering down their doctrinal integrity, they said. But before long, the Lord finally got hold of the Baptists too. And that denomination actually profited more numerically from the great Kentucky revival than did some other groups. Several Baptist churches recorded amazing growth. Uh, great Crossing Church had 170, 107 members in the year 1800. They baptized 353 the very next year. At Cane Ridge near Paris, Kentucky, there was a camp meeting attended by some 20,000 people, of whom 3,000 gave evidence of conversion. People continued to pray, and these revivals spread to other states, including Tennessee, North, and South Carolina. Out of this awakening came the whole modern missionary movement, the abolition of slavery, Bible societies, Sunday schools, and many other benefits to society. This was all because God was continuing to hear 
and answer the prayers of many people. But this was not the end. In September 1857, a man of prayer named Jeremiah Lanfear started a prayer meeting in an upstairs room in Manhattan. He advertised, and out of one million people in the city, a total of six people showed up. But the next week, there were 14, and then 23. And they decided to start meeting every day for prayer. By late winter, they had to move to larger quarters. They were beginning to fill many churches with people who were praying. In February and March of 1858, one year later, every church and, pub and public hall in downtown New York was filled. Horace Greeley, the famous editor, sent a reporter with horse and buggy racing around the prayer meetings to see how many people were praying. <clears throat> in one hour, he, was, he could get to only 12 meetings, but he counted 6,100 people who were attending. Well, when that many people are praying, things are going to start happening. <clears throat> God's Spirit so moved and spread in that area that the Baptists, for example, had so many converts, they could, they could not take care of them all. They went down to the river, cut a whole big hole in the ice. They baptized these people in the cold water. Now, folks, when Baptists do that, something miraculous has happened. Why? Well, I've been pastor of Baptist churches for many years, and I know in some churches where I've been, we can't even get complaints when our Baptist or heating system doesn't work properly. <coughs> well, can, people continued to pray. God continued to answer. In Chicago, a young shoe salesman went to the superintendent of the Plymouth Congregational Church, asked if he might teach Sunday school. The superintendent said, I'm sorry, young fellow, but I already have 16 teachers too many. I'll be glad to put you on a waiting list. Everybody's wanting to teach Sunday school. But this young man insisted, I want to do something now. The man said, well, then why don't you start your own class? How do I start a class? He asked. He was told, get some boys off the street, but don't bring them back here. Take them somewhere else. After a month or so, when you have control of these wild, reckless boys, then you can bring them here to church. They'll be your class. And so this young shoe salesman got his own class up, got a class of ragged boys from the slums and the streets, took them to a beach on Lake Michigan, taught them Bible verses and played Bible games with them. And later, yes, he took them back to the Plymouth Congregational Church. This was the beginning of a ministry which lasted for 40 years. And God blessed the efforts of this young shoe salesman, whose name was Dwight L. Moody. This was begun through prayer, and it was sustained over the years by prayer. This is the kind of thing that was happening in America around the turn of the century. But God was also hearing prayers which were being offered in other places, such as in Wales. The Welch Revival, which started in 1904, was begun as a movement of prayer. I wish I had time to uh, hear, uh, to tell you a long, fascinating story which Dr. Orr told us about how this prayer movement began in a very meager way. Then it spread to larger, greater proportions. Within five months, this prayer movement and revival went over Wales like a tidal wave. 
drastic changes occurred in many communities. For example, in, in many communities, there were no robberies, no burglaries, rapes, murders, or embezzlement, nothing. Town councils held emergency meetings to discuss what to do with their police, <laughs> now that they had nothing to do. In one place, a police officer was interviewed and was asked, what do you do with your time? He replied, well, before this revival came, we had two main jobs, to prevent crime and to control crowds, like at football games. Since the revival started, there's practically no crime, so we just go with the crowds. A councilman asked him, what does that mean? The policeman replied, well, you know where the crowds are. They're packing out the churches. But how does that affect the police, he was asked. His reply, now we have 17 policemen in our station and we have three quartets, musical singing group. And if any church in our town wants a quartet to sing, they just call the police. <laughs> Other social changes took place in Wales during those days when God heard people's prayers. Drunkenness was cut in half. There was a wave of bankruptcies, most of them taverns. There was even a slowdown in coal mines. You might ask, but how could a religious revival cause a strike? Well, it didn't really cause a strike, just a slowdown. Strange as it may seem, this is why it happened. Before they were converted, many of these Welch coal miners used pretty foul language when yelling at the horses, which dragged the trucks of coal out of the mines. But when the miners came to know Jesus Christ, their language changed, and the horses could not understand what was being said to them. So transportation slowed down for a while until the horses learned the language of Zion. Now, all I've been talking about this morning took place because of the power of prayer. Usually these movements begin very small, and they grow as people get serious about claiming the promises of God what he's willing to do when people call on his name. But what lesson can we learn from this? It's a very simple one, which comes from God's promise and the scripture. Second Chronicles 7, 14. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. So what does this say to us this morning, both personally and as a church? To me, it says that God is all-sufficient for any needs we may have, and He is more than ready and willing to meet our needs if we will call on Him and take Him at His word. On a personal level, what we've heard this morning is a reminder that there's not a single person who's beyond the help of God. <clears throat> you may feel sometimes you're all alone, but somewhere there's somebody out there who is praying for you. Maybe many people you don't even know about. And as you feel that pulling down within your heart, even right now, this may well be proof that somebody cares for you. And most of all, God cares for you. God wants to take you and bless you 
and help you just at the point of your life's greatest need. If only you'll let him do that. God proved his great love to us by giving us his son, Jesus, who wants to be our friend. Do you have Jesus as your friend right now? You can, if you'll make that decision to let him be your friend. Put your faith and trust in Jesus, and he will come and be your Savior and your friend. Oh, Father, thank you so much for loving us so much that you gave us Jesus to die on that cross to save us from our sin. We do want to surrender our lives right now, either for the first time or in a renewal surrender, to let Jesus have his way. This our prayer we offer in his precious name. Amen.